All right, hey, grab your Bibles. Uh, turn to the first epistle of John, okay? First epistle of John. I hope over the past three weeks that uh, your wonder has been increasing as we've looked at the theology of Christmas from the book of John. We spent three weeks in John uh, chapter 1 looking at the Word, looking at the witness and the world, and looking last week at the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the God, fully God, fully man, being incarnated and coming to live and to walk among us. I hope that was an encouragement to you. I uh, hope you were built up. hope your, your mind has been centered on the person of Jesus Christ during this season. Uh, and if I had planned this series better, I probably would have done this message first. Uh, but yes, this is what you get today. You get 1 John chapter 1. And we're just going to look at John's prologue here. 1 John is a, uh, a really interesting book. It's a book with a problem. Uh, and it it's comes uh, in John's writing. As John writes to this, this Christian community, uh, he's got an issue. And when you read New Testament epistles and letters, sometimes uh, Paul is very clear, for example, in talking about the problems that the church is facing. Uh, you know what the problem is at the church at Galatia. They have this tension between law righteousness and by faith righteousness. And you see Paul uh, go after that. The book of Colossians is a little bit different. Book of Colossians is like a vaccination against a, a heresy that is common uh, in the churches that are facing this idea of uh, Gnosticism or this, this false understanding of what true spiritual knowledge is. Uh, the book of 1 John has a problem that Paul writes to. It's a problem that it seems is rests in the leadership of this Christian community that at some point in the past in this Christian church, the leaders defected, and they walked away from the faith. Uh, what you see here in John's first four verses is really the application of all of this theology that we've been looking at for the past three weeks. Haven't you been a little bit anxious to get to some application? That a lot of this theological writing uh, from John's gospel uh, is really foundational. It's, it's the foundation for why and how we ought to act, how, why and how we ought to have joy, why and uh, how we ought to worship the wonder of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Well, uh, this book uh, gives you the application. This is a, a church in motion and a church that needs the truth of the theological reality of the Incarnation. And I'm going to show you how central the incarnation is to the life of the church. So we're going to look at just the first four verses here in 1 John chapter 1. And you're going to see how the incarnation is the foundation for all true right doctrine. The incarnation is the foundation for all true and right fellowship. That you can't have a church without the incarnation. And finally, the incarnation is the foundation for all true spiritual joy. So all for more joy in the church, anyone? Amen, right? That, that this uh, truth of the incarnation, what you're going to see as John builds his case with the incarnation is that this is really the goal of all that we do as a church. Right, Christmas can have this sense of nostalgia that we all come and we're excited to remember the truth of the tree and the coming and the angels and all of that. But Christmas is an invasion, 
right? Christmas is this moment where God enters in, and he enters in with angels singing, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, right? That's the message of Christmas. And what John is going to show you here, if you've ever been a part of a church or you have known someone who's been a part of a church where you've seen leaders fail or you've seen leaders walk away or it's hardened your heart to Christian ministry in general, you need the incarnation. I need the incarnation. So what you're going to see here today, I'll, just, I'll say it again, the incarnation is the foundation for all right doctrine, all right fellowship, and all right Christian joy. And you're going to get all that in four little bitty verses, all right? Let's jump in here together. First John, chapter 1, and we'll look at these first four verses. Uh, oh, one more thing. I wanted to say this. Uh, the elders and I have been talking uh, as we've gone throughout the year of 2020, and um, we started to think about something that we think we need to put in place for us as a church, and that is a corporate prayer gathering. I emailed our prayer team this a couple weeks ago, and I said, we need a time uh, of elder-led prayer in our church. And what we're going to do is begin something in 2021 where we as a church and we as elders and we as a staff and pastoral team are all going to come together uh, on, a, on a monthly basis uh, to lead a church-wide prayer. So we're going to come together, and you're not going to hear a lot from me. We're going to talk a lot to Jesus. Uh, so that's going to be something that we're kicking off here in 2021. The very first one of those is a Sunday night. They're all going to be on Sunday nights to help you uh, carve out some schedule and planning for you so that you can do those. The first one's going to happen January 10th, uh, and we'll either meet in here or we'll meet in the chapel, but uh, that's something that has been on the heart of the elders and pastors as we sat and talked and said, we need to have a spot where we are all coming together and praying for what God wants to do in our church, right? Those are the two big responsibilities of elders, the ministry of word and prayer. So that's what's coming up in 2021. Put that on your calendar. You'll hear more of that in the email coming, and then... Uh, you'll be able to come be a part of that. So it'll be great. I'm looking forward to that for our church. Okay. First John chapter 1. You ready? Okay. Pray. Yeah. Okay. Turn the heat on or something. We're all too cold. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we set our hearts and minds to look forward to 2021, we pray that all that we've looked at in these past three weeks in John chapter 1 would be the foundation of a theology that is applied. That we would not be like men who look into the perfect law of God and walk away without being changed. We pray that your word would change us, would shape us, would challenge us, would stir the affections of our hearts and minds here this morning, that the glory and wonder of the incarnation would capture our hearts and would shape our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. That we would be a people that would respond to your word with amazement and wonder and thankfulness and joy being captured in our hearts and minds with who you are and what you have done for us. That is Christmas. So, Father, as we look at these few verses here together, we pray that you would shape us and guide us, that you would give me clarity in my heart and mind, that your word would come alive off the page, that your spirit would stoke our minds and hearts around the truth of the incarnation. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, John, in the first four verses here, you only have two sentences. And John doesn't even write his sentences very well. Uh, so take a look here at 1 John 1, 
one. You see what he starts with? That. Now, if you're an English teacher, that's not the way that you start a sentence, is it? What John is going to do is, is reverse engineer his entire sentence. This first sentence goes from verse 1 to verse 3. It's a rambling, run-on kind of sentence. And what John is going to do, if you remember your fourth grade English, is he's going to start with the direct object. He starts with no introduction. He starts with no statement of the problem. He starts with no emphasis on who he is or any of his qualifications. All he starts with is the direct object and the point of what he's trying to get across, that. It's as if I say, if we say, I preach Jesus, it's, you start to reframe it and you go, Jesus, I preach. Phoenix is where we're going. Does that make sense? So what John is trying to do here is to capture your attention with bad grammar and to make you pay attention to the main point that he's trying to get across. You see that? So here's how he starts. That, the beginning. Now that's uh, probably stokes your memory a little bit about what we've seen over in John chapter one, verse one, right? Of things that we've seen back in Genesis chapter one already. Now in John chapter one, John has already told us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, right? Now, John takes his gospel, and he builds his exploration and the, and the um, exposition of who Jesus is from his divinity. But here in 1 John 1, that's all you're going to get. That's the only nod to the divinity of Christ that you're going to get until it gets into the son and father relationship that we looked at last week. But what John is going to do here is not take the theological divinity of Jesus, but he's going to take the humanness of Jesus. He's going to uh, almost reverse engineer the emphasis that he put in John 1 and now give you the experience of Jesus in 1 John 1. Now, I'm going to show you why that's important. But what he's going to do as he moves into his explanation of who Jesus is is give you this barrage of sensory language. He's going to make sure that as you think about the person of Jesus, that you would have firm in your mind all of who he is as a human as well as being God. Now, would you agree that a lot of times we have an imbalance in the way that we see Jesus? We either see Jesus as merely human and as a really nice guy, that's kind of our culture at large, but we don't really see him as God or raising from the dead, or we see him as somebody who isn't really all that human and is probably more divine than human because he kind of just floats everywhere and does miracles. But John here makes sure that you know the incarnation is a distinctly human event as well as being a divine event. Both of those things are put together, and that's going to be important for the problem that John is attacking. It's gonna be important for the people that he's writing to because the problem that has shown up in this Christian community is that Jesus coming in the flesh doesn't really matter. There's three big problems in the book of 1 John. One has to do with your Christology, who you believe Jesus to be. The second has to do with morality. What is right and wrong? How ought I to live? Can I just have a relationship with God and do whatever I want? My relationships really aren't affected by the incarnation all that much. And the third is a love problem. 
that there's a disordered affection in the life of the Christian. So when John begins his letter, and he is very, very particular in the way that you understand the humanness of Jesus, he's applying what we already saw in John chapter 1 last week. Remember what we said in John chapter 1, that when the word becomes flesh, he takes on our humanity, and it means that Jesus applies to everywhere in your life that pertains to you being a human. Do you have any human issues that are a result of you being a person enfleshed on this planet? Yeah, virtually all of my problems and all of my struggles are related to my humanness, right? Well, that means that Jesus applies everywhere. And what's the, what is happening in 1 John is that this community now has leaders who are defecting and whose lives don't match their doctrine. And they're making the truth of Jesus merely a spiritual idea and disconnecting my morality and my love and my relationships from the incarnation. Now, can that ever be a problem that I can have a spiritual idea of Jesus, but my life doesn't really match? Is that a problem in Christian leadership across our uh, culture? That we go, man, you talk a big game about Jesus and who he is, but your morality and your life doesn't match. So the incarnation is vital for how we understand morality, relationships, love, leadership, and doctrine, all of those together. So watch what John says. That which was from the beginning. Now watch the sensory language that he uses. Which we heard. Now he's going to mention uh, we, our, or us 13 different times in four verses. Why? Why does John do that? Because the main subjects that are in the book of 1 John are they, we, and you. Let me, let me illustrate this there. You got your finger in 1 John there? Just move over to the next page and take a look at 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See the distinction? What has happened among the uh, apostolic leadership witnesses in this church is that they have lost people, that there has been a schism and a break over a very particular important issue. Flip over to 1 John 4. Look at 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Look at verse 2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now that's a pretty big deal, isn't it? What's the fundamental first anti-Christian heresy? It's that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that the incarnation does not matter to your life, that you can have a relationship with God merely based on spiritual feelings, spiritual intuition, spiritual experiences. 
And John says that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Keep going. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome who? Say them. Them, thank you. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now go back to 1 John 1. John has the audacity to claim that his uh, preaching and teaching creates a we. His preaching and teaching is connected to a we. Now who's the we? The we is the historic apostolic Christian witness to who Jesus is. That Jesus came in the flesh. That's the we. And this is going to consistently be a theme all throughout your first chapter of 1 John. That it doesn't go back to a singular individual's experience of Jesus. What it was like, I, Dave, write to you and I saw Jesus personally. What do you do with that? You roll your eyes just like I do. You go, sure you did. But the foundation of the historic apostolic Christian witness is that Jesus appeared to the 12 and to 500 at one time. That it was a group experience that advances the truth of Jesus' incarnation, death, burial, resurrection. So John says, which we have heard. Now what's he talking about hearing? Peter says that we uh, heard the voice on the mountain at the transfiguration. When Jesus was baptized, what did the people hear? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right? What did people hear when they listened to the preaching and teaching of Jesus, when they responded and reacted and said, this one, this person, speaks with authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees? That for John, John goes back to the preaching and teaching and the divine commendation of the Mount of Transfiguration or the baptism of Jesus and says, we heard something. It wasn't just I heard something, but we heard something. And this is important so that you know uh, we have this problem in our house from time to time. We have uh, a whole bunch of children, and our children remember things poorly. You ever have that? You have children who don't have a tendency to remember things accurately. And there are competing and complementary stories that come to them and come to our, their parents about recounting what is the event that actually happened. We're all certain it's an event, but they recount it differently from different perspectives and different vantage points. And not to press it too far, but that's why you have the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John synoptics. They're contiguous, complementary accounts of the person and work of Jesus. And when John ties the apostolic testimony to a community he makes sure that it goes back to a time when everybody experienced Jesus in terms of who he was. That the advancing of the story of Jesus Christ is rooted in communities who experience and know and love Jesus who was incarnated. It wasn't, Jesus didn't just appear to one singular individual. So John says, we heard it. Not only have we heard it, we have, look at the next part, we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked upon. Now, is John just being redundant? 
He uses the first one, which means to see. We were, uh, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty when Jesus was on the mountain. But John uses two different words. One means to see. But the other one, the, the phrase for looked upon, it's the one that we just read here together. We have seen his glory. It's a different word for see that a lot of times is connected to uh, seeing beyond what you see. It's grasping that there's a spiritual truth behind the physical apprehension of your sight. Jesus says, lift up your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. What's he saying? He's not just giving commentary on the seasons. He's trying to draw a, a deeper spiritual point for the disciples. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does he see? He sees the reality of who Jesus is. He doesn't just see his cousin walking toward him. So John says it's not just that we saw him for who he is, but we saw him and we understood him for who he is. We didn't just have a hearing experience or merely a visual experience, but we were able to understand that we have beheld his glory. We saw the truth about who he is. Not only that, what else has he done? He's heard it, he's seen it, and he's touched it with our hands. Can you imagine what it must have been like to bump into Jesus? to bump into God incarnate, to shake his hand, to go about the normal routine of our human lives and for there to actually be God in the flesh. Uh, at the end of um, the book of Luke, there's this moment where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he's talking with the disciples, and the disciples saying, are you the only person who doesn't know all the things that have happened in Jerusalem up to this point? And then he uh, goes on to a place where the disciples are all gathered together in the room, and the door is locked, and Jesus appears among them, and everybody's terrified, which Jesus has a way of terrifying you when he breaks in to your mealtime. And he's standing there, and he says in Luke chapter 24, um, I wrote it down here, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. See, when Jesus is really incarnate and he really dies, he really rises from the dead. He carries that body with him into glory. And we live in a time and space to where spirituality is more subjectively defined than objectively defined. Would you agree with that? And what John is doing for you is making sure that you have an objective reality that is testified to and experienced that forms the foundation of the New Testament Christian church. You with me? That's why the incarnation matters. That it wasn't just a bunch of guys who had some spiritual experience in the woods. They heard him, they touched him, they talked to him, they walked with him. And Jesus pushed it back on them and said, touch me, see that I'm real. Remember what he said to Thomas? Put your hands in my hands. Put your hand in my side. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. And we have touched all of those things concerning the word of life.
In him was life, John said in John chapter 1. The life was the light of men. John's emphasis here in 1 John is on the life, which has to do with the humanness of Jesus and what has been given to us. That he just didn't give us spiritual ideas and insight, but he gave us true, actual, eternal quality and quantity of life. That's what Jesus has done. And he's done it through what John says here, the incarnation. Now, look at verse 2. John, um, again, as a bad sentence writer, John probably wasn't an English major. That's my own personal conviction. But verse 2, he kind of gets off the track again, and he hints at what he's about to say in verse 3. Look at verse 2. The life was made manifest. The word of life was made uh, seen. It was revealed. John the Baptist says this, that I came baptizing so that Jesus Christ might be this word, manifested or revealed to Israel. That the life of Jesus Christ coming into the world was not earned. It wasn't asked for. There's not something we did to convince God to send Jesus. God had to send Christ into the world and reveal him to us that we might put our faith in terms of in who, I'm sorry, his faith, our faith in who he is. And John says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. There it is again, second time he's mentioned that. And we testify to it. Now that's the same term that we used about John back in John chapter one. You see the overlap in John's writings? that he was not the light, but he came as a witness to testify about the light. Here it is again, John the Baptist and John the Apostle both have a similar duty. They have a duty to testify to it and to proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Remember that phrase we saw? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Here's what John says here, the Word was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. When John says we testify to it, it means he's communicating a message with divine weight. The same kind of message that John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, gave, John the Apostle believes that he has himself. And that this message has come from the Father. Now, here's the main verb in John's writing here. He's giving you two verses, verse 1 and verse 2, that set you up for really... The foundation of your very first point. It's taking me two verses to get there. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard. Are you seeing a theme here? No pun intended. That John is saying, we've seen it, we've seen it, we've seen it. We've heard it, we've heard it. And that which we have seen and heard, we what? We proclaim it. We proclaim it also to you. See, the point that John is getting to here is that the foundation of John's proclamation is the incarnation. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. John begins in John chapter 1, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That the truth about Jesus becomes the central issue of proclamation for the Christian church. You believe that? That when we come together, we don't talk about Steve's great ideas? When we, don't, when we come together as a church, we don't give you uh, 17 ways that I think the culture is broken? When we come together, Paul says, I delivered you of first importance that Christ 
uh, was buried and delivered and according to the scriptures, all of those things, right? That the sent him, Paul says in Colossians chapter one, him we proclaim, teaching and admonishing with all wisdom. The central issue of proclamation in the Christian church is the incarnation that God has become man. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. You believe that? Why do you come to church if not that? Why would you join a church if not because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the, the divine God-man who's been incarnated into human flesh, died for our sins, and was raised for our salvation and justification? That's a pretty good topic. And John says, we proclaim that to you. That the incarnation is the foundation of all of our proclamation. Now here's his first purpose statement. Why would John preach this way? Why would John center his preaching in the person and work of Jesus? So that you too may have fellowship with us. Gosh, that's kind of um, arrogant, doesn't it? John seems to think it's really important that as they proclaim Christ, that we would have right fellowship. What's that tell you about the apostolic Christian message? It tells you that it's the barometer for all true fellowship. You know what fellowship means? It literally means having in common and it's interpreted in various ways throughout the New Testament. In Acts 2, it talks of the New Testament church uh, having all things in common, probably related to uh, physical goods and uh, material wealth and things like that. When Paul writes about the word in Philippians chapter 1, he talks about being partners in the gospel, that the church partnered with him in his advancing of the Christian message and the preaching and teaching that God had given for him to do. That he had a community of believers holding him up and partnering with him so that he was allowed and able to be a missionary. But in 1 John, there's something that the context helps us determine is the foundation for right fellowship. It's the thing that allows you and I as Christians to have very, um, to have true unity. Here's one thing I know about this room, is that not one person is in here has an identical experience to another person. You know that? You don't have an identical experience to the person sitting next to you. You have a different subjective experience of life as a man or a woman, as a young, as an old, as a rich, as a poor, whatever it is, you have a distinctly different experience. Well, why is it that there's not all of this constant strife and contention? Why is it that we can walk into this place and sing together and experience joy together with so many diverse subjective experiences together? What in the world allows us to have such unity? What allows us to have true sharing and commonality and friendship and relationship that transcends the natural division that comes from a result of people from being, being in different backgrounds, with different experiences, with different hurts, with different pains, with different joys, with different situations? Do you know what it is? It's that God became man. It's that the incarnation happened. It's that you and I, with our diversity of relationships and experiences, are all looking away from ourselves to one single person. 
That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. See, what has happened in this Christian community is that these false teachers have begun to preach and teach an anti-Christian gospel. And the erosion of truth has eroded the fellowship. Because now there's a brokenness in morality. There's a brokenness in love. There's a brokenness in their theology that has not created unity. It's created a schism and a division. It's created, for lack of a better term, a church split. And John says the foundation of right doctrine is the incarnation. And the foundation for all true and right fellowship is the incarnation. Do you see what, how important this is? Do you see how the incarnation of Jesus Christ now begins to build a body of Christ with people from all different backgrounds, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, where Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 that he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh and has created what? One new man. He's created unity, true sharing together, true fellowship together. And indeed, now watch this, it goes even further. The incarnation doesn't just create a group of people that have fellowship and unity with one another. The incarnation creates a group of people from diverse backgrounds, diverse uh, socioeconomic statuses, diverse ethnicities, who now not only have fellowship with one another, but John takes it even further. The incarnation has accomplished, look at what it says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, God, I want to say this right, but God mediates relationship with us through truth. Do you know that? It's the truth of God that invites you into relationship with God. Remember what Jesus said? He's getting ready to go away in John chapter 14, and Philip asked him, Jesus, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And what's Jesus say? Philip, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. Which means here he stands, the divine God-man who is both the way to God the Father, opens the pathway for relationship with God the Father. He's the truth that in him uh, is the fulfillment of the truth of God. And in him is the life of men. That's what we've seen already here. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, truth, in, it, 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 uh, this is so difficult for us in our culture because we find our truth so many times in, in our own individual subjective personal experiences and that nobody can argue with us. And what John is sharing for us is that the message and the man are together in his experience, right? That he saw him, he heard him, he touched him, he bumped shoulders with him, he ate with him. And John says that the propagation of the Christian message, the propagation of the Christian church, rests in the proclamation of the incarnation. It rests in the truth of who Jesus is being preached and proclaimed 
throughout the ages. And wherever Christ is preached, what you have is inevitably Christian fellowship begins because God has now uh, united his fellowship, his intimacy, his relationship with not just you. It's not that we all come to church and all have a personal relationship with Jesus and we all scatter from here and that's it. So that you come individually to get built up in your own Christian walk and then scatter with no accountability relationship with anybody else. Although as Americans, we, re- we like that idea, generally speaking. That's very attractive to us, that it's me and Jesus against the world. But John says it's we and Jesus, right? It's we who have fellowship with God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul's entire, I'm sorry, John's entire goal of the proclamation is for the goal of fellowship and relationship among one another and with God himself that we can have the same intimacy with God himself that Jesus has with God himself. Isn't that amazing? That that intimacy is available to you, it's available to me, and it's available to our church. Now, so you with me? You got the, the incarnation is the foundation for proclamation. The incarnation is the foundation for true fellowship. But there's one more thing here that I think is wonderful that John gives to us. That's pretty good so far, wouldn't you agree? That's a pretty good foundation. That as the, as the word of God, the message of Jesus Christ, the God, man, is preached, it creates a body of believers. Wherever that message is preached, it starts to call out God's people to himself. But not just that. Look at verse four. And we are writing these things so that... Now, you've got two purposes in John's first four verses. One is that we would have fellowship with one another, and indeed our fellowship is with God, the Father, and his Son, Jesus Christ. The goal of John's proclamation is that you would be right with God. But did you see how the sensory language stopped in verse four? How do you have a relationship with God if you don't have the seeing and hearing and touching of John. Isn't that a problem for you? Don't you feel that tension? They go, well, I wasn't there. I didn't eat with him. I can't have a relationship of intimacy like he can, like John did, who laid up next to Jesus and talked to him as they ate and walked and saw his miracles and all all that. And the secret is in the apostolic message going forward that God chooses to have relationship with us based upon the communication of truth so that you can have a real relationship with God the Father in heaven. You can have a real relationship with Jesus Christ because John wrote these things down. You see how the word becoming flesh now causes a New Testament body of believers to now know God, have intimacy with God. How? Through the propagation of the Christian message where the Spirit of God gives light to our eyes and we now begin to see Jesus for who he is because of the word rightly preached. See how powerful that is for John? John goes, I'm writing these things down so that. What's your final so that? You see what it is? That our joy 
would be complete. Now, John has changed the script here for us in verse 4. It's been we and you, we and you, we and you, we and you, right? They've got a problem. They're the spirit of the Antichrist. By, that, by this we know the spirit of the Antichrist, spirit of truth, spirit of error. We, you, we, you, we, you. Verse 4, our. Let me apply this in two particular ways. The joy of a Christian is sharing the truth of Jesus. It is our great joy as a church to preach Jesus, to counsel Jesus, to disciple Jesus, to encourage people in the person and work of Jesus, to point people in their justification and their sanctification to the person and work of Jesus. For your eyes to be opened to the wonder of who he is. The goal of great preaching and the, the root of great preaching comes out, and a lot of guys write on this, they write on preaching, they talk about expository exaltation. Expository is just opening up the text and explaining what God's word says. But there's something that has to happen in your life and my life for the message to go forward. And that's an opportunity for you and me as we think about Jesus and we talk about Jesus and Christmas is here for us to begin to share Jesus. It's got to get into you. The truth about Jesus has to begin to saturate the dry hardness of your heart in those areas where you are disbelieving and uncertain and discouraged. And John says, the writing that I am doing for you, the thing that I have heard and touched and experienced, I am writing to you so that our joy would be complete. That's on John's side. When you read the rest of the epistles of John, we taught through 2 John and 3 John. Uh, and, and John says things like, I have no greater joy than to know my children are walking in the truth. He loves it. He loves to see the word come alive, alive in the life of somebody else. He loves to see the lights come on and for someone to go, I can't believe that Jesus is that good, merciful, kind gracious, patient, loving, fill in the blank. He loves that. Isn't that good discipleship? When you have the opportunity to share with somebody the truth about who Jesus is and what he is like and the lights start to come on. I had this opportunity teaching once in a small group around the table and I taught, uh, I was teaching something badly and this was years ago and this girl came to faith and I was stunned. And she's sitting at the table going, I believe Jesus is who you says he is. And I go, really? That wasn't even very good. I didn't even get it across that clearly. And to watch the lights come on in her life and for her to go, I repent, I believe, and I have joy in Jesus' name. That's the greatest joy of a Christian, that we can share the treasure in the field. Can we not? We love that. But second, The goal of, Paul, of John's writing here is not just that he would have joy, but that we would have joy. See, when you walk in the back door of a church and you sit down and listen to somebody preach, the goal of good preaching should cause joy to spark in your heart. Do you know that? Maybe you didn't know that. But John seems to think that uh, 
Joy ought to be the appropriate fruit of preaching the truth of Jesus. Because isn't that what happens? When Jesus is preached correctly, we begin to reframe our worries and our anxieties and our fears and our our histories and our experiences, and we begin to wonder, and we begin to worship, and joy begins to take root in our heart. And what John is saying is that the proper preaching of the incarnation not only creates fellowship, it creates relationship together and relationship with God. And John says, I'm writing these, that your joy and our joy, not just the apostolic Christian witness, but you in 2020, that our joy as we look to the person and work of Jesus Christ might now be complete, that it might be full. That's what I want for you. Gosh, that's what I want for me. Don't you want that for you? That as you meditate on the word of God and understand the person and work of Jesus, that you would come to a point where joy would come alive in your heart. Let's do that. Let's be about that. Let's disciple that way. Let's encourage that way. Let's share the truth about Jesus in that way. To say we are writing these things. We are carrying forth in the tradition of the apostolic witness who saw and heard and touched him for the goal of true Christian joy. Do you know that that's the goal of good preaching? Do you know that that when Jesus talks about, I have come, that your joy may be full? That sounds crazy to say. But that Jesus didn't come just for you to get intellectually smarter but that you would leave fellowshipping with God's people and fellowshipping with God the Father around the incarnation of his Son filled with joy. That's the goal. Do you see why the incarnation is so important to your life? Do you see why the incarnation roots right fellowship, right preaching, and true right Christian experience of joy together? I was blown away as I sat here and I meditated on these verses all week to go, this is the goal of the incarnation? This is why we sing the songs. This is why tears fill our eyes when we remember the songs that we sing at Christmas time. This is the point. There's one more spot that John says where he talks about joy being complete. He says it in 2 John 12. I already told you, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth, right? And the other one, he says, in 2 John, as I have much to write with you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face that our joy may be complete. Truth, fellowship, joy, all a result of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is what the angels sang about, did we not? Behold, I give you good news. Great tidings. Of, no, that's not it. What did I say? Behold, I bring something. Good news of great joy. That's what it is. Good news of great joy. May that be the foundation of this church. May we live and walk in the truth of the incarnation preached, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, uh, enjoyed, and the fellowship of one another in relationship with God the Father. Father in heaven, this is a message for Christmas where we need to apply the truth of the incarnation to our own hearts. 
may this be the truth in our minds and hearts as we leave this place. Would you stoke the discouragement and despair that no doubt is in this room even here this morning where we wonder, does Christ know where I am? Does he know that uh, what he's doing? For those even in this room, Father, who are despairing and discouraged at this season, that they would read the words of John in 1 John 1 to 4 and know that they can have fellowship with you. Know that there is true intimacy available as a result of the incarnation. Father, may our church not be centered merely on an intellectual experience, but that our heart, soul, and mind would be invaded with the joy of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who came into the world to save us from our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.